Um, I'm going to move fast. Um, I don't have a clock, so I might go long, but I'll move fast while I'm going along. Um, but, uh, but we're going to do something a little different. So uh, this morning is supposed to be Deborah, and, and I promise we will get to Deborah, um, and we'll be able to speak on Deborah when, when I can give it uh, full time. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, kind of made me vow to that, uh, that the one judge you're going to leave off can't be the one female judge. Um, and, but, uh, but I really wrestled. I think you guys know that I wrestle with sermons. I, I, I pray, I wrestle, I think, I talk, I ask questions, I bounce ideas, and then I pray some more. But it's, it's an interesting thing that a pastor is supposed to speak in teaching, supposed to speak the very words of God. And so I'm, I've always been really resistant to formulas because I think one of the, one of the last ways we're ever going to speak the words of, of God, I mean, the spirit of God, the, the word for spirit is literally wind. And so it's, it goes wherever. And so formula is not really how you capture the spirit of God. And so um, fitting into just one kind of genre or style of sermon that it's just going to be this way, it's going to be a, an intro hook, it's going to be um, this minute of exposition and then these three application points. That's just a, a very good way to do public speaking in a religious setting. It's not divine, um, but, but all things being equal, it's very effective. And so I think that's why most sermons end up there and as they should. But um, I couldn't come to a sermon in my mind that felt like it was the right word at this right time for all us people. Does that make sense? Like I couldn't find the right message, and so I started wrestling with the form. Um, and, and so we're going to do, I'm going to share some thoughts, a little sermonette, and then we're going to do Q&A during the sermon, which we haven't done in a long time. Those of you that have been here know that we used to do Q&A after every service, and we called it Redux. And Redux is Latin for brought back or restored. And the whole idea of that was that we were bringing back the conversation to church, the idea that sometimes it starts with the question uh, rather, that, uh, rather than the speaker. Does that make sense? And so if you want to be preparing a question, and this isn't political hour. That's not what it's intended to be, and I'll get into that in a second. But we're a family, and I think the world is just very disorienting right now. And it changes really fast, and I think... Uh, as a family, when things are disorienting, you get in the living room and you sit around and you, you center and you listen um, and you, you care for each other. It doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean you don't uh, argue. It doesn't mean that you, you have different takes on things. It means you kind of come together and figure out what that centering is. Um, so here's the, the brief sermonette, um, and it's called Lowest Comfortable Denominator, which I just made up. I think it's pretty good, though. I might, I might, I might try and um, copyright it and then send lots of emails every morning to news agencies seeing if one of them will use it. And then I'll get my sister, who's a lawyer, to tell them that that was a copyrighted phrase. Um, it's like when, who was it that copyrighted three-peat? It was uh, Riley, Pat Riley, when, when he copy, copyrighted the phrase three-peat. And then everyone started winning three NBA championships in a row, and he got really rich. Um, it's, a different, it's a different sermon. 
Um, lowest comfortable denominator. This is going to sound rowdy, but, but, but take the rowdiness out of it and just wrestle with the, what's being said in it. Um, a friend of mine by the name of Soon Chan Ra, beautiful human being, uh, professor at North Park Seminary, and uh, author. He's spoken at Antioch before, um, Asian-American man. He wrote, uh, uh, he wrote something this week that said, certainly beware of white supremacist marches in your cities, um, but be even more aware of white supremacist teaching in your pulpits. What did he mean by that? I don't think he meant that that there's too many pastors that are going to get up and espouse that there's a dominant culture or, or should be a dominant culture and that that culture is reflected by what has been white uh, values in America. It's, I don't think that's what he meant. I think what he meant was be careful of the subtle teaching that is to the lowest comfortable denominator and that doesn't challenge ideas or, or history in such a way that we're really thinking about the body of Christ or the kingdom of God as having true equity and equality. Does that make sense? What Sun Chan was saying is, is if, you, if you hear religious words that aren't God's words, then that's false prophecy. I was trying to look it up um, during that song, but um, I think Hannah would have had to have just repeated a couple more verses and then I would have had it, but... Um, there's a lot of times, and, and that's the problem with um, Bible gateways, you, ha- you have to put in the right search string to get the results you want. Um, but there are a lot of verses in the prophets where, where God basically says, those people that speak my words that are not my words. Those people that speak my words that are not my words. In other words, there are people that speak words um, of God or attributed to God that are not of God. And that God says, this, this is part of the problem. When Jesus came and, and the one group that he had the harshest criticism for were the people of God speaking words of God that were not God's words. And I think what Sun Chan was saying is that in churches in America, certainly in America, there has been a tendency to not want to be uncomfortable um, and to keep the unity, but not keep the unity because of truth and love, but to keep the unity because of comfortability. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Sung Chan was, was getting at, is, is that comfortability means that when things should be addressed or changed or that we should do some, some, some deep digging, find positions of, of humility or even... Um, whatever it might be that we would arrive at by, by listening to uh, truth and love or justice, that we're not going to get there because of our commitment, our pre-commitment to being comfortable. It's the lowest comfortable denominator. Um, and it works. It's pragmatic. It just doesn't follow the wind. It doesn't follow the Spirit of God. And so I put some thoughts down real quick. And if it was going to be a full sermon, it would be um, the reasons why people didn't like Jesus. Because have you ever thought about that? Uh, there are a lot of people that didn't like Jesus, and there are a lot of reasons that they didn't like Jesus. And 
Um, I'm going to give a couple, take us to Acts, and then we're going to move to Q&A. Um, and, and by the way, if you're a guest this morning and you don't enjoy this morning, it is usually a lot better. <laughs> if you're a guest this morning and you enjoy this morning, it is always this good. Um, and, uh, but we're glad you're with us um, if, uh, if you're observing this church uh, this, this day on the church calendar, Eclipse Day. Um, but so, why did people not like Jesus? Um, one, people didn't like Jesus because Jesus wanted to push change that felt really fast. Jesus went into a temple court where there was, where there was merchandise being sold and where the, the economics of really the whole city are, were, are kind of tied together. And he goes in with a whip and he drives these, these people and their animals out of the temple court. And so you're not talking about a conversation about change that people could kind of try and get with. Jesus was, was radically in a protest kind of capacity going in and trying to put a full stop to something that was abhorrent to him. And it's hard for us to stop on a dime. Our lives are built around routines. Our, our spending habits are built around routines and, and require the money that comes in for us to be able to function. And if we don't have the different questions answered, we'd rather take a month or two or three and sort it out if we're even willing to address it Change that happens really fast is hard. And Jesus pushed for radical change. And there were a lot of people that not only did not like him because of it, but that wanted to kill him. Does that make sense? Um, anyone in this room ever actively had more than one person, in fact, a group of people with power trying to kill you? Our Jesus, who we're supposed to be growing up like, was somebody that lived with death threats on a regular basis from a group of powerful individuals because he tried to push fast change. Another reason, uh, he upset the power dynamics. Um, it's really hard to spend your life having an idea of a career and how you're going to make your money and how you're even going to advance in society and then to begin to, after you've invested in that, to climb a ladder and, and on that ladder you're, you're reaching a certain kind of power level and then you get to a place where you feel pretty good about yourself. I got a couple more rungs here, but I'm ahead of all these people. This is going really well. It's three years, four years earlier than I thought I'd be at this point in my career. And then Jesus comes along and says that the whole pharisaical system in some sense in the Sanhedrin is completely bankrupt and that the people, the average common people, shouldn't be listening to that authority. And, and what do you do with that? Like you, It's red light, green light. Jesus is actually saying, I have to go back to the beginning. The first will be last. What? And start over. And so if your whole life and the power dynamics that are going on in your life and your sense of identity is threatened by Jesus, there's a, a, a very strong tension of am I willing to suffer for truth and love or am I going to push Jesus away and preserve the power dynamics? Does that make sense? I mean, think about that. 
If Jesus walked in right now and, and stood against your vocation, wouldn't there just be a little bit of pushback? Um, we're protective of our identity in our space. Um, he wanted you to prioritize deeper spiritual education over the pursuit of success. He did this with his low, what would have been called low-class friends, his fishermen friends. Leave your dad's nets, leave your homes, leave your business, and come be a, a grad student and follow me into ministry training. And Jesus said it to the rich guy. Go and sell your money, give it to the poor, and instead of being a rich young ruler, Come and follow me and be a young, new wineskins disciple that I can teach and instruct so that you can actually go and have some kind of real success in this world. If you want to follow me, change your priorities into a more spiritual one. And that was incredibly hard. And Jesus asked a lot of people of that. Didn't ask everyone those same questions, but asked a lot of people. And I think some of you have been wrestling with a calling to ministry that you just can't figure out. And, and I would simply say that calling that's been there for 10 years or 15 years, the answer is it's going to be one big um, Band-Aid ripoff. It's going to be ripping a Band-Aid off and just saying, I, I have to radically re, reorganize kind of my thinking, and it's going to be painful. But I know Jesus is calling me into a deeper spiritual thing that way. But if you don't want to do it, there's resistance. It's one of the uh, reasons people don't like Jesus. Jesus was unpredictable. He was unpredictable with his disciples and his friends. Get behind me, Satan. His mom and his brothers uh, and sisters, you know, they're not... Like, my, you know, Jesus, your family is calling you? Like, who's my family? Well, if I'm Jesus' brother, I'd be like, I'm your family. You, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what do you mean everyone's your family? They're not all your family. Like, like, you know, we get really annoyed with family members. If I was Jesus' family, I'd be annoyed. And Jesus is wanting to make everybody his family, right? Um, and, and just even... All the way up until the end, get a sword, Peter. Put away your sword, Peter. Like, it's just, it's disorienting, you know? Work hard all day. Keep the crowds from me. Stay up and pray with me. Like, why wouldn't you pray with me? You fell asleep. Like, Jesus, I just can't do all of what you, it, it's, it's a bit unpredictable. Um, and the crowds left him because Jesus one day is feeding him, and the next day he's saying, I'm not going to feed you because you're trying to depend on me for material reasons. You've got a prosperity gospel, and, and that's not what I'm here for. And so he's unpredictable. You can't just walk in one line and then go, I've got the cadence, and begin to check out and think that you've got the cadence to this whole thing. Jesus will, anyone watch Hunt for Red October way back when? Remember the uh, Crazy Ivan? Like, Jesus pulls Crazy Ivans. And you can go watch that movie today. Um, one of Sean Connery's finest. But he, he changes course on you, and you have to actively follow. It's not going to come just by a formula or a routine. Um, and then I'd say, lastly, Jesus didn't address fully the dominant felt needs that his society had. The dominant felt needs of being under the oppressive rule of the Romans, the dominant felt needs of economics and what that would look like for people and, and their hierarchy of needs. Jesus addressed them in, in some ways and he took care of people's needs, but ultimately he was aiming at something much deeper 
and it's uncomfortable when the things we want to be talking about aren't first in the mind of Christ. It's a different conversation that's first in his mind. And it makes us want to get away because it's, it's tension-filled. Jesus, it's, it's draining sometimes to, to have to bend myself out of the conversation I want to be in into a different conversation. And Jesus would simply say, then stop trying to do that every day. And start with where I am. I'm the rabbi, the master, the Lord, the teacher. Just make it one commitment that you're going to follow me by faith. And you wake up in the morning and you say, Jesus, what should be the conversation? We've been trained with all our prayers and everything else that we start with, this is what I want to talk about, God. And this is what I need, God. And then, whoops, I'm out of time, God. But we always start the reverse way in from faith. We project in rather than try and receive. And if faith means following, then we got to start with listening and what it means to receive. So here's, here's the dominant thought. Um, that faith, when Jesus talked about faith, when Jesus preached and taught on the spiritual realities of discipleship, it was always into a context that was charged with drama. Always to a people that were under oppression. Always into a week where he was receiving death threats and his, his disciples were beginning to wonder if that was going to bleed into them as well. It was always to people that were either rural or urban. Always to people that had something on the calendar for next week or re were reacting to the health news or whatever else it might be before or the famine that was going on or whether the rains were going to come. But when Jesus talked about what it meant to live by faith, it was always always in space and time. It's always within the drama of human, human life. Always. And we have gotten into the habit, and I've been guilty of it, when we speak the words of God that aren't really God's words, of abstracting faith into some wonderful spiritual maxims that seem to be really disconnected from the drama of our lives. And we talk about the stories of the New Testament and the principles therein. And then we get to disorienting weeks. And we don't really know how to have those conversations as people of faith. What does it mean for me to be a witness right now in this space, even when I'm confused? One of the, the hardest parts about being witnesses is we've been trained to have confidence. You go and be a witness and you go and preach and you go and tell people. And then what, what happens when you wake up one day and you go, I don't have the answers to this week. And I should maybe not even be the one teaching. How do I be a witness through humility? How do I be a witness through listening? How do I be a witness through bringing in someone else's voice that might be further along in this journey or have greater maturity than me? But so that's kind of what I'm bringing today is that this Jesus we follow is a radical guy that, that forces us to choose him, not out of comfort, but out of commitment. So the end of Luke, it says this. Um, and then we're going to questions. So if, you, if you've got something, you can go ahead and start doing that. But what I meant by it's not politics or culture, I will take whatever question comes. But I'm, I'm saying let's have a conversation about what it means to live as people of faith. Um, if you've got it all figured out on what it means to be a witness of Jesus Christ this week or next week, um, we'll cut the Q&A off and I'll bring you on stage. Short of that, let's have a conversation about it.
And we might not even agree or answer um, that many questions, but we can leave as a community that's found the right posture of being in conversation. Does that make sense? We're patterning how to be a family in difficult times. Jesus said this at the end. Um, he, he walked with these guys on the road to Emmaus and, and uh, he appears to them. He's walking with them. Um, and then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he says to them, this is what it is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now you are my witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So three things. Jesus starts with education. I'm a big believer in education. Um, every day when I go to Facebook, I'm reminded that I'm a big believer <laughs> in education. Did anybody see that Chris Rock joke go around, meme? It's really funny. Chris Rock had a post and he says, I just found a brand new app that uh, lets you know which of your friends are racist or not. It's called Facebook. <laughs> um, brand new app. Just, any, anyways, um, I'm a big believer in education. Education isn't everything. It also has a purpose. It's a purpose that we're going to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. And that we absolutely cannot do this by ourselves. That the effectual cause of this, the thing that will make it to where we're able in our wisdom, our knowledge, our education to witness is going to be when the Holy Spirit gives us some kind of power and some kind of gift or ability that we do, uh, do not have in and of ourselves. And we've lost that, haven't we? My opinions, my comments, my ideas of how to fix anything um, really have to come through and be filtered through an awareness of the Holy Spirit's work in my life and what the Holy Spirit is giving me or saying to me that I can bring to other people. Um, I don't know how to fix a pothole in Bend, Oregon. I don't know how to fix a pothole. Um, a little bit deeper, I don't know how to fix broken marriages. I've been trying for 20 years. I don't in and of myself know how to do that. And I certainly don't know how to fix the weather. Because we have a guest in town and we tried so hard to drive somewhere where there wasn't smoke. And we went to bed one night, the smoke was here. We got up, packed the car to drive to Elk Lake the next day where there wasn't any smoke. And guess what? The smoke had shifted. It got all the way to Elk Lake, turned around. It was a really, really nice drive. Um, windows up, it's really smoky. I, I, I can't fix much. So the silly idea that I can fix the people that disagree with me, I can fix the problems halfway around the world, that I can fix the problems in our country, that I can fix my enemy, that I can even fix how people perceive me as a broken and flawed individual, that I can somehow control that, I can't do that. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can witness to what it means to live by faith 
and to manifest this kind of a spiritual reality that's different and shocking and talks about the good news and that people will see that and be drawn to my Savior. Um, we're going to run out of time for Q&A, so I'm, I'm going to stop there. Um, but somebody's got to start. So Mike, right there. You don't want to... I guess you can yell it out and I'll repeat it. Did you raise your hand or were you just... Yeah, go ahead. Go for it. He's the only one that doesn't have to go to the mic because he was willing to be first. Yeah. That's an honest question. And um, I think it's a great place to start. And I think, I think what I'd simply say is a lot of life there are no prescribed answers to. It's why we have so many books in the Bible that are called wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes and Job and, and Proverbs and, and the book of James. And in the book of James it says that if we ask God for wisdom, God will give it. Um, and this this whole notion of wisdom is that, that somehow it's easy to define what life is supposed to be. We love our neighbor. We sacrifice for people that need our help. We, you know what I'm saying? It's easy to know what it's supposed to be about. It's very confusing on how to get there when we have competing choices and demands. And it seems like everywhere we go, it's a lose-lose, right? And so I would simply say, that you ask God for wisdom, you, you act to the best of your ability, and, and trust that in living by faith, God is going to honor that, that either your neighbor, if you choose not to go, is going to see something in you that's attractive in the fact that you came right there, still wearing church clothes or whatever, or your faith community is gracious enough that we would understand and support and applaud you in making those kinds of decisions. So I think it's one of those open-handed, as we pray and ask questions of God for guidance, that he gives us the wisdom. And we get the confidence to know that we have a God that's not looking to judge us at every turn, but to reward those who live by faith. Um, big faith comes in the Gospels from, from people in difficult situations that choose to prioritize Jesus or believe that he has power over that situation. We're talking in the book of Judges, and it's all about the Canaanites and the Israelites and the tension with those, those neighboring countries that are kind of interlocking. We see a thousand years later, there's a Canaanite woman that comes to Jesus, and he's like, you're from the other side. 
and you're coming, that's really amazing, and you're wanting something of me. In other words, you're showing respect to me and you have belief. And then she kind of really humbles herself and Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere. You know, Jesus, God rewards faith, not in its grand displays, but in its humble, honest wrestlings. And so I would just say, um, blessed are you uh, who is wrestling with love, with neighbor love, with what it means to be a witness, and God will and does reward that. Thanks, man. Microphone? We're not recording your questions, I don't think, so. Kip really likes it. He might put an echo on it, you know, reverberate. Sure. Um, I'll take the corporate things. I'd rather talk theology than politics. Um, we, we see in Scripture a covenant God who makes covenant, covenants with people. So the, so, so the Israelites, the children of Abraham, right? Um, with families. So the, the early household baptisms, get, it, it gets used as debates about believers' baptism, infant baptism. Take the whole debate away and just go. It, it's, it's fascinating that that culture has household baptisms because that's the way they understood God operating in their lives, that God was a covenant God and that there was an umbrella over your house that if you put blood on a, a door frame, your house in some sense would be passed over that God would honor that, that house. doesn't mean that your teenage kid is treating you right or that your, your toddler even understands anything about God. It means that as a parent, you've spread a, a covenant over that house um, in, in relationship with God that protects that house. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, and he says, even if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, stay with them because it's okay. Your kids are considered holy through the, the belief or the faith of one believing spouse. In other words, there's some kind of a corporate aspect to God's interaction or dealing with us. Um, that is really why in the Catholic Church you, you have a, a part of the theology that really is you're saved by virtue of being in the church and that when you're excommunicated, it's a very scary thing because you're not just being shunned socially, but you're actually being put outside the circle of blessing. Does that make sense? So if you fast forward to the Protestant Reformation, whenever you react against something, you, you go to the opposite what? 
extreme. Um, uh, I ask really obvious questions, so when you answer, do it with confidence. Um, but uh, you go to the opposite extreme. And so the Protestant Reformation, which also had this kind of work ethic um, and, and everything else that comes with it, really began to emphasize the individual. Now, when you take that over to the U.S., uh, you have the Puritans leaving um, under Queen, uh, well, really under King James, who came in after Queen Elizabeth, and they had been be being put in jail. And so there was a period of time where they were getting out of um, the Anglican church that was really beginning, the Church of England, that was neither Protestant or, or extreme Protestant or Catholic, and they wanted kind of their own way of, of following the Bible, and, and several or lots of those congregations came to the States, and they brought with them an, a strong anti-Catholic bias and a strong sense of individualism, and you see that build through American history. It's, you can talk about it in all sorts of books or in uh, cultural history or in philosophy that American self-reliance is its own dominant idea. It's been huge in the history of America, this, this sense of self-reliance. That I'm my own individual and I can pull myself up by my bootstraps doesn't matter what my family or community or anything else has with regard to this. I have this power of self-actualization. And that comes into our theology that God is going to reward me based on me or punish me based on me. But it's really all about this relationship with God and me. I go to church. Why? Well, because it's a spiritual discipline. But I don't really take and understand that I am a relational being that doesn't exist in a vacuum and that God intended that his children or this body of Christ would be a corporate reality, that we would go together. Um, it's, you go to Africa and the, the, the African proverb is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. There's different proverbial sayings in different parts of the world that teach you a different kind of mindset. And, and we would be better off if we could balance the individualism with a little bit more of a corporate understanding of, of um, the we part of it. And that, and that God sometimes blesses communities or families. Um, take it even further. In the Ten Commandments, it says that if I'm really obedient, um, that God would bless my kids to a thousand generations, right? So my kids, some of them are in here, should really, really care about my obedience if they want, to, want it a little bit easier in their life. You know what I'm saying? But if that's the promise of God, we, we realize that it's not all just about the individual, that there's a corporate reality. And so I think one of the beauties of when things are destabilized like this is we can look at it and get overwhelmed and pessimistic, or we can look at it and go, it's change and it's uncomfortable, but change is always an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in my life. Because when it's comfortable and routine, I'm not really paying attention, right? And I'm not really digging as deep in Scripture. Uh, I want to say something else, but maybe someone will ask the right question and then I can make it an answer to a question instead of just... <laughs> Instead of just continuing on. Um, yes, sir. Yeah.
Yeah, I, I think everyone's, everyone's story is going to be unique. Where you came from is unique. Um, the things you wrestled with then and, and now are unique. But I think there's a point in everyone's life when the call to discipleship is very clear. The come and follow me is, is very palpable. And, and that we want to hedge our bets with that. If I half follow Jesus, would that be okay? If I give you these things that I'm, it's like two kids. It's like you have to share and you watch the child start thinking, what can I live without? And then they get really excited because they've decided they can live without this half of the, their, their stuff, but they really want to protect this half. We do that with, with Jesus. Like, you, you can have most of my life. I think I'd be great with that, but, but I want to hold this my desire to be married or what that picture looks like or my dream for retirement or I'm going to hold those things back, but can't you see all that I put in the middle or that I gave you? And I think if we're listening in prayer and we're willing to feel it, we're going to begin to be aware that we're playing that game with Jesus. And we're either going to quickly shut that off because it scares us or we're going to sink deep into it and probably shed some tears and realize that we're scared. We're scared of being completely abandoned to Christ. We're actually scared of doing what baptism says, that we're going to die to the, to the old self and then be raised again in Christ, belonging to him, a new creation. Like We're, we're actually scared to say that, that Jesus can be Lord over all of our life or that God is, is really the one who owns all of our stuff. Right? It's great when we tithe, but it's like it's all God's. You know, we're not, we're not doing this. And so I think what I'm saying is that there's a, a moment when we choose to respond to Jesus' call of discipleship in a way that we're all in. And I think it makes all the difference in life. I, I, if I had a magic wand and, and I was going to use it not for money, um, but for spiritual purposes, I, that's the one thing I would wave is, is just that everyone here would be able to have a radical moment of surrendering all and then let Jesus begin to put that back together. Right? That's kind of what I was meaning by that. Um, and you, your verse made me think of something else, but I already forgot it. Um, what was your verse again? What did it say? Um, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in vain. Um, self-reliance and individualism teaches us build the house, right? Um, Pete said uh, recently, we're talking a lot about the vision of Antioch, and this fall we're going to go into a vision series, and, and Pete has a great way of saying it. He, he basically was saying that the vision of a church should be something that can only be attained through the power of Christ. If, it, if we can do it ourselves, then we're not the body of Christ animated by the Holy Spirit serving the head, which is Christ. We're just a social gathering that knows how to build a barn, right? And so there's something about our dependency and that we need to be reminding each other that if you feel like it's too much, that's okay. That's the starting point. Now, where do we go from that? Is that a hand? No. It's.
Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing. Um, that's one spirit-filled deck. <laughs> Whoever got that deck is, is lucky. They're going to be blessed when they're on that deck. Um, when I got serious about my faith, I was in college, and I spent a, I, I spent a lot of time alone. I lost my fraternity friends. Um, I was disoriented, and I had a lot of alone time and developed some really good habits of journaling and, and Bible reading, and, and I found a a pastor who was mentoring me. And, um, and then life got busy. I started taking leadership things, and I started actually speaking, which was a faith stretch for me. Um, the first few times I spoke, like, my mouth would get so dry I couldn't talk and be sick to my stomach, you know, beforehand. It, it was a faith thing for me. And, um, but life got really busy, and so this pastor was asking me about it you know, how's that prayer life? I'm like, well, I figured it out, but now I can't do it because I'm super busy. He goes, no, 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 no. This is now the second part of what you need to learn. And I said, well, what's that? He says, you need to learn to have a posture of prayer in the midst of the busyness and the mess of life. Like, you know, you, you learned how to, to do it and to sense it and to hear it and to feel it. And now you need to learn how to carry that with you even in the midst of the noise, right? That you can still still yourself. And I think that happens through intentionality, continuing to find the life-giving words that, that fill us that way, um, but also through community. Um, so there are small groups. You get with other people and hammer it out. This was a bad week, you know, and sharing about it and being encouraged. Um, there's a pastoral residency track. Not everyone can do it but based on schedule and whatnot, but talk to Pastor Pete and, and it's a year-long thing, life-changing. Um, 
for those that can do it. And there's some other leadership development things that are going to be starting that, that don't require that same schedule that would be a little bit easier. So we're really trying to say, how do we find ourselves in proximity where we can talk about these things in a practical way and move it forward? Because we can't always do that on a Sunday morning. Um, and so I think your question is about as real and honest of, of what that wrestling looks like to continue to walk daily by faith um, and that we have to kind of do that together. It's like a bike race, right? Like the drafting in the Peloton. Like if you ride a bike alone, you're, you're not going to get very far. But if you find a group of people and you can strengthen each other, you're going to be able to go a lot faster. Um, I think I just repeated the African proverb, didn't I? Um, hey, I want to say one last thing, and then um, we might be out of time, but this is just where conversations begin. Um, there needs to be a, an honesty and a, and a teachability with regard to the place that race actually holds in life and therefore our spiritual lives. Um, the early church in the book of Acts, you remember, um, they shared and it was wonderful. They had everything in common as the direct language um, and they had the favor of all the people. Everybody liked them. The Greek-speaking widows versus the, the Hebrew uh, widows, the Jewish widows, the Greek-speaking widows that were down around Jerusalem were beginning to be overlooked in the, in the giving out of, of money or trying to help them in terms of charity. Um, why? Well, they were the other. Spoke a different language, had a different culture. Um, you could even go further and say those are those people that are tied to the the whole Hellenization of the, of, of the world that, that happened through Alexander the Great, and they brought with them all sorts of things we find repugnant. Um, but whatever the reasons are, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. Overlooked means it wasn't accidental, like it was, it was happening on a regular basis. So that comes to the apostles. The apostles say, we, we got to appoint people to take care of this. They appoint the first deacons. Those deacons, Stephen being one of them, all Greek names. They appointed Greek Christians to take care of and make sure that the Greek widows weren't being overlooked, right? Then all of a sudden there's persecution, um, and there's the first martyr of the Christian faith, and it's Stephen. It wasn't Peter, wasn't James, wasn't uh, a, a Jewish Pharisee that was a part of kind of the, the Christian, that had converted over and part of the Christian council. It was the Greek guy that was looking after the needs of the Greek people. And that that's the person that, that was, the crowd was first able to galvanize around and stone. And then there's a persecution that drives out the Christians. We, we know that, right? It's persecution that drives them out. Yet when Paul is preaching the gospel up north years later and, and, and needs the leaders of the church to vouch safe for this, this presentation of the gospel that he's giving, where does the letter go to? It goes to Jerusalem. And Peter's still in Jerusalem and James is still in Jerusalem and the leaders of the Christian church are still in Jerusalem. What, what does that tell you? The Jewish Christians around Jerusalem knew how to navigate that culture. They had relationships, and they were able to stay even though a lot of other people were persecuted and scattered. 
racism or discrimination of objectifying the other and allowing things to happen to them that we don't really um, think of in terms of our own culture or what feels more safe for us has always been a part of, of human evil. It has always been a part of, of how we protect ourselves and our own and, and are allowed to not care about the neighbor. Why did Jesus talk about the Samaritan when he wanted to find neighbor? Because the Samaritan was outside of that line or that circle. We always have a tendency to double down and protect what's comfortable. The um, least comfortable, least, what did I call it? The least comfortable denominator. Um, and so as we go through this season, um, let's remain teachable. Because there are deep issues that we might not be aware of. There are other people that have experienced things that we haven't experienced. There are things we can learn, and, and it doesn't mean we're wrong with everything. It means that in this season, we can walk away and learn something about Scripture, human nature, what it means to love our neighbor and be the body of Christ that we wouldn't have known if we were walking in our normal routine and in our comfort. Did anyone just learn something about Greek deacons and Greek widows? Okay, That wouldn't have happened had this week not happened. I wouldn't be standing here sharing that, right? Um, so embrace the opportunity that comes with sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That we would learn a little bit more about Jesus' heart for this world and why he gave himself up for it. And that we, as we're trying to be witnesses and live by faith, are gonna need the power that is not within us to one even stand in a position of grace and, and two, to be able to, to go out and make a, world, uh, a difference in this world and be a light. So we're coming to the table, three, two, one, on the dot. Never happened before. This is, a, this is like that deck. This is a spirit-filled <laughs> moment right here. Um, we're gonna come and take communion and, and this is what centers us. Not that everything we say on Facebook is the same between us. Not that if we got together at the Thanksgiving table, we would all agree. What centers us is the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that that becomes for us a means of grace that empowers us to be his body, the incarnation, the hands and feet that go into this world. What a beautiful thing. Um, so Hannah and the team are going to come and lead us in song as we respond and worship, if you need prayer, just go to one of the exit signs. Whenever you're ready, you can come and receive communion. And I'm just going to briefly pray for us. Father, to you be the glory, now and forevermore. Um, we thank you for the love demonstrated through Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That we might live and live fully and live as witnesses of your love. And we pray that in Jesus' name.